Perfection. people and turn on public radio you're, <laughs> you're listening to last refuge of the incompetent i am gall this is moses this is ted and this is a speculative fiction podcast every week we pick a different theme curate some stuff around it talk about it probably spoil some books for you yeah <laughs> ideally we spoil your whole afternoon <laughs> but uh this week we are going in a, a different direction we're not we're not talking about fiction so we have a very special guest on josh olson is an oscar nominated screenwriter and the host of the west wing thing and the movies that made me podcast i'm a huge fan of the west wing thing and i hope i'm not being presumptuous but i'm pretty sure you're into sci-fi and uh speculative fiction yeah i mean i here's the funny thing is i'm enough into it that i understand the culture but i never got you know i got i got sucked into it kind of through the literary route harlan ellison mm-hmm. and ray bradbury were like my big science fiction writers so mm-hmm. you know and through them i sort of grudgingly got into stuff like asimov and then some of the other things but you know i came i came for the writing i was not discriminating against you know any any genre and i still don't but yeah i'm not i'm not that hardcore sf guy i am not i i am enough to know that it's sf and not sci-fi Harlan will write for the great, do the great and beat me senseless if I use that term. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm conversant and like most screenwriters, I can talk about it for five minutes before you realize I don't know what I'm talking about. Well, yeah, you're a perfect guest then. So it's only a five-minute show. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, that's it. So our 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 topic for this week is in particular Harlan Ellison's The Glass Tea. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with who he was, Ellison was a prolific writer. He's remembered for his work in particular in the new wave speculative movement in sci-fi which is like a 60s and 70s experimental think like joanna russ the female man which is something we talked about really early on in this series yeah his fiction is freewheeling psychedelic uh he's also known for his work as a television writer notably star trek but um, he's written for a lot of different shows, not just sci-fi. And The Glass Tea comes from a regular column that he wrote in 1968 through 1970. It was all about TV, and it was for the Los Angeles Free Press, one of the first and largest underground newspapers of the 60s, notable for its radical politics, and it examined TV's impact on politics and culture. The reason we're doing it is because when I reached out to Josh, he suggested it. I think it still counts as speculative fiction in the sense that there's one essay where he imagines himself being <laughs> well, in a, 1980. He's an SF writer, and so, yeah, of course that falls within our purview. We can talk about anything Harlan does. So even if we're not focusing on his short stories, such as I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, and so on, or even if we don't even talk much about the TV shows he wrote, his writing about TV is great. Reading these articles, these columns from 68 to 70, 71, has been great to relive the past. Or sorry, not relive for me, because I didn't live it the first time, but, you know, take a journey to the past. Yeah, if you go from his TV criticism to one of his short stories, there's a big stylistic overlap. What is it about The Glass Tea that really speaks to you? What is it? What is it relevance for us today? Why bring it up in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I was, when I was in ninth grade, I had an English teacher named Janet Goldstein, who I think recognized something in me. I was like that kid who had... You know, great grades in classes I was interested in and flunked classes I didn't care about. I had the basically the, the highest SATs and the lowest GPA of my class. And she turned me on to Harlan. She gave me a collection called Ellis in Wonderland, which is actually, when you go back, it's some, some of his very earliest stuff where he's still kind of coloring within the lines of science fiction for the most part. But you can feel the, the, the voice you know, emerging. And I read this stuff and I was like, and I remember just not just being blown away by his writing, but, you know, s- somewhere around, you know, page 43 going, uh, I need to be a writer. This, this is what I want to do. I want to do what this guy does. And one of the things, aside from the incredible writing, is he also, he was very upfront about himself. It's, uh, you know, there's a lot of essays that, collections of essays that he's written. And most of his, in fact, every now and then, you know, I, I still, to this day, will go into a bookstore and go to the science fiction section and see if there's a new Harlan book out. Which, the more you hear about my connection to him, the more you laugh at me. You know, every now and then when we come out that didn't have introductions before each story, and you'd be like, ah, I'm only getting half of it. Because the introductions were amazing. And 
somewhere in there, I, I, uh, you know, I just buy everything he put out. And I found that no matter what it was, I, I was riveted by it. If it was science fiction, if it was, um, you know, crime stories, if it was essays. And then he put out uh, these books of collections of his uh, television criticisms. And they, they blew me away as a kid. I had not really, you know, grappled with the notion that media can be used as a tool to, you know, as, as Chomsky says, to commodify dissent. And and Harlan was kind of my introduction to that. I mean, eventually I went on to read like Neil Postman with Amusing Ourselves to Death and, and then, of course, Chomsky. But Harlan was there in kind of the early days writing this stuff from the inside. And I knew, even though when I was first reading it, how incredibly astonishing it was that not just was he writing this incredible stuff where he would do a column, you know, dissecting how last night's episode of The Partridge Family was selling you mm-hmm. the Vietnam War. Um, he was doing it while he was earning a living in TV, which still boggles my mind. He was one of the most ferociously talented human beings who I've ever come across. Um, he was brilliant. And in the best way possible, he knew both of those things. And he couldn't stop himself. It, it wasn't as though he didn't understand that he could potentially harm his career by writing this stuff. He had to. He had, to. And the more he got involved with TV, I think the more he felt a responsibility to in some ways, kind of atone for the sin of writing for TV. You're listening to the podcast edit of Last Refuge of the Incompetent. To listen to the full episode with all of the music and nothing edited out, just go to lastrefugepod.com for more information or search Last Refuge of the Incompetent on Mixcloud. Yeah, I really enjoyed his columns in particular about uh, his experience in the writers' guilds and you know mm-hmm. solidarity during strikes and trying to improve not just the writers' lives but the writing itself and you know really yelling at the people he he truly thought were sellouts that is were disparaging yeah. the the whole profession of writing by just plunking down dumb templates for TV shows. Yeah, I mean yeah. he he thought of writing. It's interesting. I mean he he did more to get across to people that writing is a job, that it is something like laying bricks that you do, that you get up and you work at doing that anybody I know. At the same time, he also believed it was a holy chore. And that was intoxicating as a kid too, was reading this guy who, you know, I think I had these kind of feelings. They were not, couldn't enunciate them. But that notion that people who were just kind of sloughing off stuff that were, you know, working at half speed or who weren't very good or who didn't care about the impact of their work, that they were in fact doing something more than just being lazy ass. That they were that they were betraying something important, and um, that that kept him angry, and that kept him going forever, you know. And that really connected to me. In fact, there's a, there's a, if if you see and if all that comes out of this is people see the documentary that happened before. Uh, Eric Nelson made an amazing doc about uh, Harlan called Dreams with Sharp Teeth. It's streaming. You can get it online, and it really does more than anything I've ever seen. Communicates what it's like to hang out with Harlan. And I am deeply pleased to be in the film. I'm jumping to the end of the story. I ended up getting to know Harlan, became great friends with him, and I'm the only living being who's written with him. But I'm I'm in the film telling this same story I just told you. And there's also footage of me from a movie I made uh, when I was about 20 of me lying in bed reading The Glass Tea, which is in the movie about Harlan. So I can prove I was there, man. But, um, you know, but this stuff just set a fire in me and it, that, that fire has been burning ever since. And by the way, I should, I should clarify one thing to people. I'm sure most of the people listening know this. He didn't just write for Star Trek. He wrote one Star Trek episode and it was yeah. the episode that every time they do a list or a poll of every Star Trek series, all 8,000 of them, mm-hmm. what's the most popular episode? The one Harlan wrote. Also, he hated Star Trek. <laughs> I know. I did. I, I, I mentioned it because. No, it is yeah, what he's, yeah. you know. Absolutely, yes. And one of the best anecdotes, I think it's in the second volume, The Other Glass Tea, uh, where he's talking about the deleterious effects of television. He's saying he retells when he was at a talk um, and explains how, oh, yeah, I just made up these words, these scientific gobbledygook words that Spock says on this episode of Star right. Trek. And somebody in the audience stands up and is crying. He's like, no, that's not true. <laughs> 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 Spock is real. Yeah. Harlan, Harlan hated that stuff. <laughs> he 
he was he was not a fan of kind of geek culture. Yeah, you definitely get a lot of the eighties, nineties sort of Gen X skepticism of TV. Uh, you def- it definitely feels like it comes from here at this point. But he's also his cynicism about it seems to be kind of a product of naive optimism he has about it at the same time. That's kind of disappointed each time. No, he like, believed. I mean, he understood. And you know, if you're going to, you know, I think he he wrote something. Uh, yeah, he wrote like they've taken the most incredibly potent medium of imparting information the world has ever known, and they've turned it against you. Harlan absolutely understood that if this is a medium that can be used to hurt, it can also be a medium that can be used to to heal and promote. I think it just frustrated him endlessly how it got used, how it got corrupted. That particular quote, like that's in the introduction, I think, to the either the you know first 1970 volume or the second volume. But then in the latest edition that was put out, which was 2011 or so, he wrote another introduction. And in that one, he pretty much just says, well, I tried to warn you all. And then yeah. little did I know the internet was right around the corner. So it's all, yeah. you know, yeah. just a lot of swearing. So it's really funny to start with that because that's the introduction that comes first where he's just swearing a bunch. And then we get to the 1980 introduction where he says ah the book was suppressed but here it is finally and then the 70 introduction where he says well i wrote this column and i'm really happy about it like if you go further back in time he gets less uh depressed <laughs> well, I think, yeah i mean we we had a lot of i mean you know and i should say i really was you know i got to know him had to meet him in 2006 and it was just one of those things where we just you know he, he was a fan of a movie i had written called the history of violence and i was absolutely just exploiting the notoriety I had uh, in that hot <laughs> minute that I got uh, nominated to see if perhaps I could get to meet Harlan and buy him lunch and through a mutual. In fact, my boss on the first movie I ever worked on was an artist named William Stout and he was friends with Harlan and called him up and I said, hey, can you just find out if like Harlan even knows who I am or what this movie is and if he likes it? Because if he does, I want to thank him and buy him lunch. Bill calls me back two minutes later and he's like, he loves the movie. It's his favorite movie of the year. He wants you to come up to the house right now. And we ended up sitting around talking for a couple of hours and at one point Harlan goes, uh, I like you, kid. You're my kind of person. And I remember thinking, <laughs> on the one hand, like how f- amazing sorry um you'll get a bunch of those bleeps (laughs) on the other hand i remember thinking well yeah i better be i spent most of my formative years stuffing my head with your writing so um obviously i was paying attention and we really were we were each other's best friends for the last 13 or so years of his life talked every day hung out all the time traveled we wrote together he asked me to write it we adapted a short story of his for a tv show called masters of science fiction and uh that came out really well it's worth tracking down that's uh, brian dennehy john hurt directed by jonathan frakes i'm really proud nice You know, he he never, and I've never, you know, I I don't accept that the internet is a, a good thing necessarily, but he did come around a little bit. You know, I, I always make the argument that, you know, the, the bad is there, as with TV, but one of the things the internet afforded us that TV didn't is is a certain amount of democracy of access. And, you know, to, to me, the kind of the wake up moment for that was Standing Rock, where turn on MSNBC, you can watch 7,000 hours of Rachel Maddow or one of those people. They wouldn't say a word about it. And then you go on Twitter and you would see live footage of, you know, American troops firing hoses at these protesters, that this thing was happening, that the media wasn't covering. And, and I know that he felt, you know, he at least acknowledged that that was one aspect that was not a terrible thing. In the long run, he still wishes there were no TV or Internet. <laughs> and I can't there... I can't disagree with him. <laughs> Entirely. Yeah, by the end of Other Glass Tea, uh, where he's finally developed this just TV is bad period, the media, it's inherent to the medium itself, which seems to have been triggered by his experience writing an episode of The Young Lawyers. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, at that point, he says, basically, you know, writing allows us to imagine we fill in all the blanks with our minds whereas tv just gives the image to us straight and that's what that's really why it's fundamentally bad because it um squashes the imagination which is kind of yeah he's kind of developing the same critique that neil postman did around the same time or a bit later and yeah with the internet the other kind of screen that he's very angry at in the intro to glass teeth you know text does come back even if yep. a lot of people just watch mm-hmm. snapchat stories or whatever's on instagram or tiktok there is that text element but i mean he's also concerned that basically his earlier critique is that just the networks are putting the wrong content in people's minds and it leads you know the common man to just be sort of brainwashed and it's interesting how some of the deleterious effects of the internet kind of test that thesis because you know mm-hmm. 
QAnon isn't about some video being given to you and you just accept it. It's about like, I'm doing my own research and right. it's, the, it's the interactivity that makes it mm-hmm. kind of so dangerous. But on the other hand, I mean, uh, well, network yet, news. Um, here, let me, let me, let me dive into the, the hot water already. I mean, and yet um, and a friend of mine pointed this out. Yeah, it does. But at the same time, at least with QAnon, they have to work, you know, I mean, yeah. I, look at, I look at, I look at like Russiagate, which let's just call me a bit of a skeptic on that one. And it is literally just, <laughs> You know, people sitting in front of their TV glassy eyed as Rachel Maddow or whoever just like hands them these stories that, you know, ex-CIA chiefs are telling them. And there's no there's no engagement. Just accept this, accept this, accept this. So in a weird way. And no, just so your guests are clear, I swing much farther to the left than <laughs> the QAnon or Rachel Maddow. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, in a weird way, I would say that at least QAnon engages your brain if you know, obviously in terrible ways, but you know, it does ask you to, you know, think. Yeah. And, if and by the way, to- here's ultimate irony. I did manage to get Harlan. Well, I, you know, I, I started it for him. There is a Harlan Ellison uh, YouTube channel where you can go and see tons <laughs> and tons of great videos of him talking on TV shows and things. Oh yeah. I did see, I was talking about this show uh, with a friend recently and, or with my wife's cousin. Uh, he's also a friend, but you know, <laughs> you can clarify that. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I wanted to give him props. Because he said that, uh, oh yeah, I remember that the Sci-Fi Channel used to have Sci-Fi yep. Buzz, like Sci-Fi News, and they would have a Harlan Ellison segments, uh, yep. where kind of like an Andy Rooney type segment where he just they give him some space to talk about. Yeah, whatever. whatever mind. I, Harlan I, Ellison's watching. Yeah, so I gotta yeah. go look at those. Yeah, those are those are on the YouTube channel. A ton of them are. I he he gave them to me, and I I ripped them all digitized. Awesome. Them all. Well, thank you. Yeah, and it's it's uh, it's a great resource because uh, he was incredibly ridiculously entertaining at the end of the day. Oh yeah, we should also say like. He has a reputation for being, you know, especially in the last couple decades, a crotchety old man. And when he wrote these glass teeth things, sure, you could read it as kind of crotchety, but he's crotchety for the cause, for the people. Like, he's, he was at, you know, uh, civil rights protests, getting his head bashed in by, He marched in Selma. I mean, he, yeah. yeah. And I mean, Harlan was a true blue, um, he'd rankle at the description, but he was a true blue lefty. He was a real progressive. You know, he put himself on the line in so many ways for for the cause. And, um, uh, you know, that's reflected, especially in these columns. Yeah. You know, in fact, there there was a great one that that I was kind of flipping through the book. It's been a long time. There was a great one he wrote about going to, um, I think, was it it a great pickers uh, protest rally? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. He's been talking about Cesar yeah. yeah. Yeah, and he, he goes down there with like um, a bus full of, of sort of L.A. people, Leonard Nimoy yeah. is with Leonard, him. Yeah. And, and it's a great piece because he's understanding, he's really, really frustrated by the fact that, you know, the media is showing up because of them, because of Leonard Nimoy, right. because of Harlan, because of these guys. And, and if it weren't for them, this would this would be getting even less coverage. And you know, he's grappling in that, in that column. It's a really powerful piece of writing with yeah, sure. And that's where a lot of people stop. It's like, well, yeah, but we're shining a light on this by being there. We're helping expose people. But then he talks about the consequences of that and what it does to people who are watching, uh, mm-hmm. what it does to the cause, what it does to you know the world that people are paying attention to this because celebrities are there, not because it matters. Yeah, that definitely came through as one of the most like perceptive and kind of self-reflective of the columns. Yeah, actually, can I read you? There was a great line I just thought it was beautifully wrote. Um, we do good by being there and by allowing the teat suckers, by the way, the glass teat, or he would say tit, was television. Like that was his all. So we do good by being there and allowing the teat suckers in their living rooms to see us there, but we kill them a little bit by allowing it. We kill us too. Worst of all, so hideously much worse, we kill those grape pickers marching endlessly down a road that has no destination save in oblivion. We should also point out that if you're going to read this book, you should remember it was written in 1968 through 1970. Mm. And the people language is different, different and then. the people just talk different, <laughs> all right? <laughs> because it's you could find people that would find issue with some of the things he says. Just in the Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there was there was one of the ones I was really you know, in flipping through um, you know, we recently had like in the last year or so you know, kind of people becoming aware of what, what we now call copaganda. And, right. you know, there are slightly fewer new cop shows being sold now than were last year. It's having an impact. People are starting to understand the harmful effect of this stuff. Harlan's writing about this stuff in 1968, 1969. There's an amazing piece about, um, I can't remember the he's writing about two new shows. One of them is a show that never made it. And the other is the mod squad. And yeah. he just, mm-hmm. he just goes, a 
on it about that about how they're co-opting the, the the movement to turn these kids into cops and to sell this terrible idea to you and it was in, yeah that that was it really hit me in that article he uses some language that today you know there's a tendency to go for the surface and not the substance and there's like one or two words he uses in there that people are like oh i'm done with him i can't he's and you're like right. it's 1968 you know yeah. and and he's not even using the language in a derogatory fashion but he's he's using it at a time that was that was you know acceptable then and you know you could see people getting turned off to the message now unfortunately because of mm-hmm. some of the language and i would say like um read the book it's um you know <laughs> yeah and, and, and also <laughs> put more credence in his actions than yeah uh, exactly how yeah some of those things except when it well, calls yoko ono ugly that's unforgivable yeah yeah, yeah. the <laughs> ugliest chick in the world i think but by the way also that was that was like that was unavoidable back then it was such a tragedy that's it was true, like yeah. so it was just yeah. it was just like there was no other option you know which was yeah. so i think people have sort of evolved beyond that thankfully but no he and i i mean literally one of the last conversations we had he talked about you know he said there's things he had done in 1961 or 62 that were and i want to be really clear here these, these are not secrets it's not, he's not committing <laughs> He's not talking mm-hmm. about giving up any criminal activity. He did things in, you know, the you know, in the sixties that were completely acceptable that you would do in broad daylight and that everybody thought was fine and that your right. favorite characters on sitcoms would do that today would get you just drawn out of town on a rail that we now we know but and he said it's an interesting thing. We are working to create a world where the people who come after us regard us as monsters. And you know, and and yeah, and that that really hit me hard when I was reading, especially that that Mod Squad piece, because it was like, yeah, there's going to be people people who aren't going to hear this because they're so caught up in, you know, the, the the surface details of it. And you know what he got, and I think what I get is like, it's like, sure, you can judge that stuff, but do understand, twenty five, thirty, forty years from now, people who come after us are going to be looking at you and finding you just as wanted. And that's, yeah. you know, in a lot of ways, a good thing. It, it's not in the glass tea, but we <laughs> we all decided to watch at least one episode of, uh, well, oh, God, now I want to The Star Lost. The Star. Because <laughs> <laughs> it blew our mind how terrible it was. And then yeah. we <laughs> and then we read the essay he wrote in Stalking the Nightmare Somehow. I don't think we're in Kansas, Toto, which is a great essay and kind of connects to the glass tea and in that and he breaks down how you know, you could be this great writer you could have an idea and then hollywood can completely <laughs> destroy it or the business um, yeah just take it and rewrite it while you're out of town right oh, yeah. <laughs> and so in it he says that at some point the studio executive tried to bribe him into breaking the strike by but he was in the office he was looking at this portfolio of actresses there was can a beautiful I, actresses. Say, oh, i yeah. don't remember i don't remember this essay i i know how this must have gone <laughs> <laughs> yeah so he's this beautiful actress who remarks oh you know i'd like to have some of her whatever two men talking whatever and then he gets a knock on the door it's this beautiful actress i just happened to be in your neighborhood and i wanted to say hi and you know this great show that is in production (laughs) yeah are you gonna write it um and you know and how close to the pilot are you done (laughs) the funniest part is his actions are you know he says like i could have yeah. Taking advantage of it. <laughs> what I wanted to do was unspeakable of- <laughs> things. What I did <laughs> yeah. do is say, please leave. <laughs> yeah, because of that damn feminism. And I think, like, <laughs> you know, you have to realize, like, he's being a good person there. He's just yeah. being glib about it, you know. Yep, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, Harlan, as as uh, as Robin Williams says in, in the documentary, uh, the ladies love the little Jew. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and also to that, I should say there is, he did finally get to, here's the crazy thing about him. And I don't understand this. I'm in the WGA. I've been a screenwriter professionally for decades. I get out TV works. Harlan managed somehow to write all this stuff for other people and keep the rights to it. He managed to somehow keep the rights to his Star Trek story. He managed right. to keep the rights to, to what became the Star Lost. And a few years before he died, it put out what was called Phoenix Without Ashes as a graphic novel, which was an adaptation of his original script. And it's great. And in fact, he and I spent a little time trying to get it set up as a, as a new TV show. But yeah, The Star Lost is one of the great abominations of his life. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely an interesting premise, but executed yeah, in a great such premise. an odd oh. way. It's yeah, because so it was bizarre. just execu- executed without Harlan. 
<laughs> it was uh, like watching a Mighty Boosh did, episode. They managed to cast an incredible mustache as a lead. Sheer <laughs> Julia from 2001. Sheer yeah. He's the most oddly soft-spoken, like, almost whispering his lines leading man I've ever seen in TV. And I don't know if yeah. that's just his version of doing space Amish, or <laughs> if they just found the most Canadian guy they could get. I did. I was telling these guys earlier, my favorite part of the essay that he wrote about it was that, you know, when he was selling, when he was pitching this idea to this executive, they he was like, that is the most brilliant new idea. I've never heard anything like that but before in Harlan, like, in the essays, like, I don't want, have the heart to tell him that, like, sci-fi writers have been doing this for a long time. Yeah, this exactly. isn't... <laughs> the last arc of humanity off of the stars? <laughs> yeah. 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 That, that bit where he, you know, he, he and the producer, and the producer obviously doesn't know anything about sci-fi SF, reminded me of a bit late in Other Glass Teat where a producer at Universal, I think, like brings in a bunch of writers to pitch ideas, and then he tells this room full of writers that his idea, the idea he wants made is Harry Mason with telepathy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why uh, there's one story, I can't remember if it's in the glass tin or not, and I heard him tell us in person, too, was uh, gets a phone call from some studio exec. You've got to come in first thing in the morning. I've got a story only you can write. And he comes in, and the guy goes, he's sitting down, and Harlan sits down, and he goes, all right, give me out. It's good versus evil. <laughs> <laughs> The Mod Squad is a show he brings up a lot and badmouths a lot, but it's mm -hmm. a really interesting example of how he's very passionately certain about things, but he can change his mind on a dime. Uh, he yeah. starts out badmouthing Mod Squad for good reasons. He says it's basically glorifying. Oh, it's the, the Harv like, Bennett, right? Yes, and then yeah. he yeah, yeah, gets yeah. a screening of like two Mod Squad shows produced by this guy Harv Bennett. Says it's great. I take back everything I said about Mod Squad, <laughs> and then a couple months later, he's like, "Never mind, Mod Squad is awful." <laughs> well, he also, but he says in that very one, he's like, "Okay, go go watch the Mod Squads that Har Bennett did." But that's that's it. By the way, Har Bennett, who wrote, uh, who's very much responsible for the kind of return of Star Trek, he's responsible for the stories at least of Star Trek two, three, four, five, and I, I only just started watching Star Trek like six six months ago, so. You can say whatever you want about the show. I liked it. It was we we fought all the time, uh, and his wife, his late wife Susan, was also a fan, which drove him nuts. But I mean, but that was Harlan. He could he could go off for twenty minutes about how it was like the scourge of the earth, and only idiots would watch this. Shit. And they're the worst people would make it, and then you know, me and Susan would go, "Well, we like it." He'd be like, ah. <laughs> What is uh, the other things he calls his, I don't know, this one of the more cynical stylistic things in the book is the common man, the scuttlefish and hard hats of yes. middle America. So he calls everything a shuck and like everyone yeah. is a scuttlefish, which yeah, never heard that. That's a pretty <laughs> good, it's a good, good coinage. There's, yeah. There's also one funny bit uh, later in the second book. He says, he uses the word malarkey and he said like, you remember malarkey, a common term from the 30s and 40s? Right. Yeah. <laughs> back, baby. Our yeah. um, 100-year-old president has brought it back. One of the things that stuck with me was the, the, the while I was reading it was this everything changes, everything stays the same sort of idea where all of his critiques are it's all the same. It's all the same mm -hmm. critiques that we have now. You know, he says, like, this: the three shows that are on rotation are doctors, lawyers, and police shows. You know, this whole idea where I, the, I really liked the, um, I liked the essay. It's like three essays where he, he's talking about a show where they, they're interviewing, like, the middle class white man, which, mm -hmm. what a bizarre show. And it's like, just talking to five white middle class men. And their their segment is so chilling. Like they all say that their troubles stem from people on welfare, from bleeding heart liberals. Um, at one point, one of the guys says, "Is all I want is to be left alone when I turn the TV on. I see how bad it is for blacks and poor kids in the slums, and I don't want to feel guilty. I want to be left alone." <laughs> oh my god! It, yeah, it, yeah, it's it's harrowing to just hear how common that opinion was of oh, all those protesters. They deserve to be shot. The kids at Kent State. I would have shot him myself if I could have. Like it's, but it's the same stuff that you hear now yeah. too. That's yeah. the, I mean, the most chilling part. And I think in his essay where he's imagining himself in 1980, he even says like, you know, we realize that nothing we can do is going to matter, but we still do it anyway. Like the rev is still happening somehow. Yeah, just just getting up in the morning is an act of optimism if you don't <laughs> right. believe it. Yeah, and it was something that he and I, 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 
I we, we would argue about, and I think he had a sort of more nuanced view than came across in a lot of his writing, at least towards the end. Because, you know, on the one hand, he did decry the, the assaults on education. That, you know, he was he was an early adopter to Ronald Reagan as a piece of because he, of course, lived in California, and Reagan was mm-hmm. here in California, you know, demolishing the education system. You know, one of the things, I'll, I'll say this, there were, there were, Harlan was easily the smartest human being I've ever met and will ever meet. And, you know, the, the one or two times I actually managed to, like, win an argument with him or even get him to shift, I will, I will cherish forever. <laughs> and, and one of them was like, you know, I was like, you, you can't constantly go on about how awful sort of the common man is and talk about how much work has been spent demolishing the education system. Like somewhere down there, you have to add one and one together and, and realize that it's two. And and the weird thing is he knew that. I mean, he knew that, that we're not, you know, th- th- there's no progress without coalitions and people being in solidarity and that you are absolutely going to have to be, you know, I talk about this in the West Wing thing all the time. You're going to have to be in solidarity with people who you find personally odious sometimes. And and he knew that. But I think, you know, what, what drove him more, you know, Harlan was this kid. He was an autodidact. And as much as he knew he was one of the smartest people, you know, Carl Sagan used to call him up and ask him to explain things to him. I mean, I'm not joking. That was a real thing that happened. And he is, he was one of Robin Williams' best friends because he's one of the few people on the planet who could keep up with Robin, you know, where they could actually, Robin didn't have to slow himself down to have a conversation with Harlan. But at the same time, there was this sense in him of underneath it all, like, well, if I can figure this out, any idiot can, you know? And, and Thank you for making my job harder. <laughs> <laughs> We knew. Sorry. I mean, going into any episode about Harlan, it's yeah. difficult not to drop a few. It would be inauthentic to the. It would be unfaithful yeah. to the topic. Not I so apologize. Yes, that is. No, correct. it's fine. <laughs> the documentary. I think that is the documentary rated. If it's not, it should be R. Because yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty profane. We we are in in safe harbor hours. If we were, wait, no, you still can't curse. You can only play music. No, no, no. But so, I guess yeah. a radio. Who does radio? Is radio still? Where do I? Like, if I bought a radio, can I listen to this show? Something? I'd have to be there in front of my radio. You, you could, you could happen, stream right? it. Instant, yeah. Stream <laughs> no, it on yeah, the I, I could stream every. Oh, okay. All if right. you drive up to Santa Barbara County. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think you can even get it in, like, Ventura. Yeah. You yeah, know what's yeah. hilarious? I actually, as I say, I do, I should bring it down. Show it I have a beautiful Art Deco radio. It's this beautiful, round, gorgeous blue glass Art Deco thing that, that Harlan gave me that, that sits front and center in my living room. But I'm sure it works. Um, it's not plugged in, and I I wouldn't know what to do with it. I like. Do you know he has a, a one of his essays where so Ted and I both we met studying in Brazil, and he has an essay about his time in Brazil, which was really interesting to read because he was there, you know, during the dictatorship, and um, he mentions that he talks a lot about bread and circus, which. This is also a music show. My my one suggestion was Panis and Circensis by Osmotanchis, but I think we played that already. We did play it. Anyway, yeah. But he talks about the bread and circus of their radio and their and their TV. But when I was there studying, one of the things that I learned about was the pirate radio was huge in the favelas and it was a way for mm-hmm. like it was it was free. You know, you got one radio you put in the center of the favela and you could broadcast to it and you could foment revolt through it. You could give mm. information through it. It was like one of the ways that the actual dictatorship didn't control. Um, right. So for people in the future, when, you know, <laughs> when we when we don't have access to our internet or our TVs anymore, pirate radio. The radio. <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And that essay about Brazilian television talks about like how incredibly insipid it, wa- it is. And I, be- I can totally believe that it was. Pretty much worthless as uh, yeah. information. Yeah. It was pretty bad when we were there. It was bad, yeah. When we were uh, and that there. was during Lula. But he has some yeah. line about how it's like television is does more to suppress the people than like all the tanks and guns the dictatorship has. I'm like, does it? I feel like the tanks <laughs> and guns are a big part of it. <laughs> I don't. I feel like Brazilians might have been able to figure out that it was bad, even with the terrible TV. Oh. can't decide how powerful it is and if it's a power for good or bad. He's a man of a lot of conflicting impulses. I mean, it's a tough question, too, because he, you know, he enjoyed a lot of TV. He worked in it and he also got it. And, you know, it's one of of many things we bonded over is, I mean, I've always sort of, you know, I've always shared his frustration at at how few, God, I made a mistake of of reading one of these screeds about the WGA. And and I was like, God, I'm trying not to be this pissed off these days, you know? (laughs) 
And, um, but it's astonishing how many people uh, who work in my business are just oblivious and mostly willfully so. You know, these are well-educated people with a lot of money who have time on their hands. And these ideas are not new to them. They've just made a point of trying not to listen to them. That what we do can have an impact. And to me, it's really, I was just talking this the other day with somebody. It's like, if you accept that Schindler's List did some good in the world, and I think it did, if you accept that t-shirt sales plummeted when Clark Gable took his t-shirt off in, in uh, <laughs> oh my God, I'm by all killed, uh, you know, in that movie, um, it happened one night. You have to accept that it can also have a bad impact. It's just like, yeah. it's axiomatic. You can't only do good in the world. There was a, a statement he makes that I, I don't know if I agree with, and it's possible because he makes it early on in the, in the articles that he completely changes his mind later. Mm-hmm. But um, he says the generation raised by TV can't be taken in by TV, that they're wise to the fraudulent. But, you uh, know, we're the generation raised by TV, and I know many people that are easily. Oh, you're like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, yeah, that's, you're, you grow up watching commercials, and I guess either you fall for it or you you get so sick of it that you reject it forever. Yeah. Yeah. He can't, uh, at times it seems he believes that, uh, it's the networks, the producers that are disappointing the audience by get not informing them of what's actually really going on. And then next column, he'll say how national educational television or whatever it's called. I think it's like a proto PBS. He says, uh, how it makes great content, but we all know that everybody's going to watch like entertainment instead. So in some way, TV fails the audience, and in some way, the audience fails good TV. He has this sort of, he's horrified by anti-intellectualism, but he also has this, like, anti-elitist streak that, and they're yeah. constantly in no, which is interesting, because he, well, because he was, he was very much in some way, I mean, some ways blatantly so, an extreme elitist, you know, and it's, it's, but he was, it was, yeah, it wasn't a, it wasn't a class that with him, uh, you know, people who can't be bothered to take the time to, to learn annoyed the right. f- Oops, sorry. <laughs> and, uh, but, but yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's a good point. I mean, you know, the man was, uh, unlike me or any of the three smiling faces I'm looking at here, the man did contain contradictions. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I loved how, much you know you read all these and you know it's not fair to call them screeds but you do get how deep how deeply he despises certain parts of television but then you also have to get how deeply he loves it because he is watching so much tv uh, and i deeply respect that so it was was also just great great to read about all these just forgotten shows and i'm just like come on show me tell me an actor that i'll recognize like oh wow this was canceled this show was literally canceled after the first commercial break that's great (laughs) oh god isn't there is there one there's one in there i remember he goes off for like five pages about how zalman king is the epitome of the oh so sexy He says something like, if he's not the hottest thing on TV next season, I will, like, eat this copy of the free, of the free press with my shoe yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yep. Salmon King did Blue Sunshine, uh, Galaxy of Terror. Fun. Nine and, and a half weeks. He, yeah, so. Yeah, yeah, later, for two decades, he directed and produced, like, sleazy erotica. Red Shoe Diaries. <laughs> yes. No, no, no. Classy erotica. Classy. Classy erotica. Yeah, Tilda yes. Swinton, David Duchovny, Mickey Work. That's right. Um, That's right. Yes. Yeah, I, I think uh, one of the. There's a column where he's just reviewing a new TV, new shows, and one of them is uh, The Partridge Family. The entire review is just, Mother of God. and then i think uh the next week he 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 has a longer review of happy days of this is the most terrifying show i've ever seen this is what people how people want to have nostalgia except i could like it seemed the way he wrote about it it seemed like it was set in like a 30s or 40s like music hall or something and seemed to be a variety show it like I've I mean, never watched was... much Happy Days, but it seemed like it was a different show called Happy Days. Oh, it's a different show. It may have been a different. Uh, yeah, because no, Happy Days comes later than 1970, mm-hmm, yeah. so that'll be a different yeah, show. Yeah, I thought it was really. But interesting. I promise you, without having, I don't think I've ever. Dis- I don't know why I would have ever discussed Happy Days. That would have been his reaction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, toxic nostalgia. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was interesting when he he does his um, review of the pilot for all of the, all of the family that didn't get made. But that eventually got made into all of the family, and he talks about how like what a shame, you know, this should have been this. W- this was a right. great show; it could have been a great show. And you're like, oh, yeah. they, did, they made it. Uh, yeah, and he's he's very pro all in the family in the second volume when it actually has when it actually come comes out, out. I believe. Yeah, but yeah, it is yeah. very funny, like what he likes and doesn't like sometimes. Like 
He's big. I mean, he loves the Smothers Brothers, which makes sense. Cause, yeah, I, I love mean, the Smothers much, Brothers. Yeah, they're no, great. Smothers Brothers, I mean, you have to. I mean, they were, they yeah. were, they were about as, that was it. That was the voice of any kind of, God, I hate the phrase. It's been totally co-opted by idiots. But they were the voice of the resistance back then. That was the real the counterculture. Thing, you know? The counterculture. Yeah. yeah. And I was, um, you know, and everybody who was watching it knew it. But it was also at a time when everything had to be coded, you know, yeah. and people who were watching knew that. Um, it wasn't as overt and, and they were they were they were sending messages to the troops in a really really kind of interesting way. So, so that that yeah. one's not at all surprising. But then he also like he loves Saturday morning cartoons. He, yeah, he does. He thinks they're all great. <laughs> he likes Mission Impossible. Um, and he even sure. even though he criticizes propaganda quite a bit early on, he says Adam yep. Twelve is a good show. A show that gave its namesake to saying the police. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Thanks, Which, Ted. By the way, and uh, you know that it's You're interesting. Welcome. Yeah, and I think that's a, that's a, there, there's a lot of affection, and I've tried to, and Harlow's one of the people who tried to you know, for for kind of the Jack Webb school of of, uh, of film and TV, and you know, there's a, a film that Jack Webb wrote, directed, and started, and called Pete Kelly's Blues that Harlan was obsessed with. That uh, is actually pretty fun. It's like Jack Webb's a musician, a jazz musician, and uh, he would quote it for hours. And it's the, there's a great line about like he's he's so cheap. He has rubber pockets so he can steal soup is a line from it. <laughs> Harlan, Harlan appreciated a good line. And I just, but Adam 12 was, of course, from the Jack Webb school. And there was something about that. And I think growing up on radio, he had a kind of affinity for that. But also, like, as a kid who, you know, very early on, he had an encounter with the police where I can't remember what he had done, but basically his parents let the police take him in and keep him in it. He probably writes about it in one of the essays. Yeah. Uh, he wrote about it a lot. Where, you know, yeah, the, he, the police uh, kept him in the station, yeah, for the whole day. And to, to this day, you know, like Harlan, Harlan is the last guy in the world who would embrace rap. I mean, he had an iffy relationship with rock and roll. So, you know, <laughs> this, this kid's music. So he, was, he was not the big rap fan, but but he got behind, forgive me, the police. That was, you know, he, he understood yeah, his, that one. <laughs> his, his crime as a child that led to uh, the police, you know, showing him the horrors of the drunk tank and everything as an mm-hmm. eight-year-old. His crime was uh, ripping open cereal boxes so he could get all the different toys. Oh, that makes sense. Sure. They're collector sure. pins, so like, <laughs> yeah. you got to get them all. Yep. This, if it's just another Woody Woodpecker, I'm throwing it away. i got to get every single pin. And here's the thing with Harlan. He kept those, and he kept those his entire life. His house was oh, like awesome. a museum. I guarantee there was an entire room. He built a room off the kitchen that was just his, you know, uh, promotional glasses from fast food restaurants. For, <laughs> you know, so there's like... Yeah. Yeah, they did a thing for the Rocketeer. He has all those glasses. He has all Does he have his Zalman King uh, big gold? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if they made one, he did. <laughs> Speaking of his ambivalent relationship with rock and roll, I thought one of the most interesting essays is uh, when he's on tour with Three Dog Night. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And talks about how how odd he finds it. That uh, like everyone just has the TV on in the background, usually on mute whenever they're at the hotel, just the whole tour. And it's yeah, one of his more experimental and probing sort of explorations of what TV means and what role yeah. it has. I know people like that. Have you ever been to people's houses where they just the TV's just always on in the background? So sorry. Many, many, many the- years ago, and I remember telling Harlow this story and he loved it, hated it. Um, I was at, at dinner with friends of my then wife and we were sitting at the dining room table and I was the only person who had a view of the living room. And I remember the TV was on <laughs> with a sound off. And I was like, I went up and got to the bathroom and I thought, oh, and I'm on the way back. I went, mm, I turned it off. And the guy whose house we were at, who couldn't see the TV or hear it, <laughs> got up, walked around, goes into the living room, turns the TV back on, sits back down. I'm like, this is insane. This is an insane yeah. world that we I live think in. There it's is something about the the high pitched, you know, su- <laughs> supra oral electronic hum that you can still sense of just having just that just, on. Just knowing, just knowing your friends are in the other room. I don't know. No, no, no. Something about that pitch yeah. is you need it on to keep your brain resonating, <laughs> or you know, you get addicted to it after after so long. And if it's not on, what, what was that? Uh, lose control. Uh, your short that we that we just read. Oh, the, the euphonium. Yeah, Wait, yeah, 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 yeah. 
Yeah, the Vonnegut short. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yuffio. I'm also, I'm very, I gotta say, I'm heartened because you guys appear to be at least significantly younger than me. But um, <laughs> you, you, you find that as appalling as I do. <laughs> it's so bizarre. It's so bizarre. Yeah. I, think, I think there's a generation, like a subset of a certain generation that believes that like if you have cable, it's wasting it to not have it on. Um, <laughs> like, that's a genuine like position, that. I think certain people have. Uh, I'm paying for for this content. That's why I keep my I water running 24 yeah, hours. I'm paying for it. <laughs> <laughs> nope, 515, time to flush the toilet. <laughs> you brought you brought up Vonnegut, and uh, he shouts out Vonnegut, shouts oh, yeah. out uh, early in Glass Tea. And to me, not having read that much of... Whoa. I live in Philly. I did this Philly sounds. Oh, Philly. <laughs> oh, yes. uh, Sorry. There's a sideshow going on. That's, that's my no. Proustian response. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It felt like my childhood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, not having read that much Ellison, but reading Glass Tea, he he feels like he exists in a space between Vonnegut and Hunter S. Thompson, uh, but mm-hmm. a straight edge Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That, that is. Turns. That is that is uh, uh, amazingly apt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He has the Hunter S. Thompson sort of. We're in the maelstrom. Everything's crazy. Yeah. I'm yeah. like the one observer inside of it, combined with Vonnegut's sort of plain spokenness. And like, I mean, they're both from Ellison's from Ohio, I think originally. Yeah, Gainesville, yeah. Ohio. Yeah, yes. Vonnegut's from Indiana. And they both have Vonnegut has that you know depressive streak, whereas Ellison has more of a nihilistic streak. <laughs> I'd say I want. I mean, I've struggled with that. I I don't think so. He was <laughs> down to his bones. He was a romantic optimist, and yeah. I think if you are that, and if you have a functioning brain, that is going to come across to some extent as cynicism in the world we live in. It it was. He just he expected better because he knew we could do better. Which to me ultimately is is a form of optimism, and and it depressed the shit out of him. You know, kind of having to constantly have that getting beaten down by the world. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a column where he says, he's talking about, you know, all the crimes of the society at the time. And he says, if there is a god, he'll hasten the ecological debacle, kill off all of the diatoms in the ocean faster and deplete the oxygen mm-hmm. supply, and we'll all go under at the same time. Right. If not, maybe, uh, you know, we'll get <laughs> nuclear war and everyone will kill, be killed that way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it kills off 96% of the population of the Earth. That'll be cool, because you deserve no better. Um, <laughs> so there is a nihilistic streak, definitely. It's, yeah. part, I don't know, it's part of his sense of humor also. I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, is, that, is, that is him having fun. Um, <laughs> having a good time. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's him hoping for something better. It's him, it's him going, you know, shaking you. And I'm, I'm going to stop apologizing. He's just shaking you and going, listen, mother. You need to wake up. You need to do something because this is yeah. where you're headed. And yeah. um, God, if there were For- ever a time, you know, and I think he, he sort of pulled back uh, the last few years. I mean, we had a lot of conversations. He he was so Harlan was the first person I knew who predicted Trump was going to win. And and I, I wish he, you know, and he just sort of, you know, I mean, God, the guy was 80 and he had written. He was one of the most prolific writers who ever lived. And then all these people were like, when are you going to write more? And I was like, Jesus Christ, shut up. You know? <laughs> it's like time for some of you to pick up the, the mantle and do the work. But he it was so frustrating to him to see the way people sort of settled back and go kind of, you know, complacency. And, and um yeah, I just you know. can't imagine how after living through, you know, the rise of Reagan through California and then the presidency and just seeing just having again and again. Yeah, it doesn't just, feel good. just watching, you know, I mean, there's something we share is just just watching the party that's supposed to be the one that watches out for us, just basically handing it to this guy. Right. Like, Are you kidding? Are you kidding? Are you not going to actually try to win? You're going to run this candidate that nobody right. likes. You're going to. It was nice. That part of that one essay he wrote where he was asked to imagine, you know, ten, what, what do you think life will be like 10 years in the future? And he says, well, I'm underground and everyone's trying to kill me now, but I'm still writing this TV criticism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're still at war in Vietnam. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's right. The war. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Early in his criticism of television, he talks about how TV has killed off the hypocritical baby-killing machine politician, uh, but will give rise to the showbiz politician. Yep. And I, his example is Reagan. And he says, well, of course Reagan, but there will be others. Yeah. And like, no. uh, others probably made similar predictions, but it's very prescient. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I mean, he was, he was always, yeah, it's, it's a, certainly not the first, but but uh, well before most. And it was that, uh, the, the Nixon administration that uh, got, you know, that took out his first book from uh, oh, that's right. yeah. circulation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Spiro he said Agno. something about Spiro Agnew and uh, 
uh, whose name, by the way, some of your listeners ought to Google. He never comes up. We uh, <laughs> don't talk bio? about Spiro these days. <laughs> Nobody talks about Spiro. No one talk about Spiro. <laughs> uh, that, yeah, for, for me, that is one of the funniest things about uh, both books together is that, like, that one man's uh, quest, like, crusade against Spiro Agnew is the yeah. overarching plot arc. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and he was on, he was very proud of it. He was on Nixon's enemies list. And rightfully so, you know, yeah. he, was, he was stirring people up. Yeah, in the first foreword to Glass Tea, he explains how how the, the columns became a book and how it was selling like hotcakes. And then suddenly yeah. bookstores started calling up, I think Ace is who published it originally, and yeah. saying we're sending the books back and he thinks it's because Spiro Agnew didn't like something he said about him and like put some pressure on people it seems very credible but yeah it's funny that this you know Nixon is definitely seen as a bad historical figure but nobody really thinks about Spiro Agnew's role <laughs> in all of it but the dude resigned because he was caught taking bribes <laughs> this is a vice president of the United States I mean it's just it's astonishing yeah, it's but, astonishing but for for Ellison, he seems to be a bigger figure in the Nixon administration than Nixon himself. And I think it's because Agnew was kind of the representative of the, the common man uh, mm -hmm. who Ellison kind of sees as the enemy of, uh, you know, the youth and progress. Well, I think it's because he was a um, he he was one of those people who sort of passed himself off as, you know, a voice of working people. We got a guy from Delaware who's doing the same thing right now. But. <laughs> <laughs> What's this malarkey? Oh, I, so usually we talk about the music ahead of time, but I figured we should just go into it. But Ted, the only thing I could think about was doing like um, theme songs from TV shows that came out from 1968 to 1970. Harlan mentions, you know, musicians every so often. Yeah. Oh, yeah. One yeah. Was Another yeah. Weinberg. Yeah, like yeah. like the Zalman King thing. Another one of his predictions is that people like Elise Weinberg and Laura Nairo are are the next big thing. They're going to replace Diana Ross. When he came, when he came to yeah, like I mean, you no, know, he did. He toured with the Stones, I think, in '73, and and he was he was okay with them, but his his he was not exactly on board with uh, what the kids were listening. To. <laughs> so, which you know, whatever. It's, uh, it's it's a thing that happens with age, and uh, so yeah, but yeah, Laura, yeah, Laura Nairo. She was great. She was great. Yeah, yeah both of them. I can't imagine hearing her and going, yeah, this is going to supplant the Beatles. <laughs> Not that she's bad. It's just, yeah. you, you know, you understand. Yeah. yeah, they both put out great records, but they didn't yeah. become the next big thing. <laughs> exactly. He's exactly. very angry about how Flip Wilson treated them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> very angry. <laughs> Which was grave, not forgiving Flip. Damn you, Flip. Uh, and later, later on, he... He talks about how his friends have told him that he's been, like, too hard on Flip Wilson. Um, <laughs> and uh, and he, he seems to have actually accepted some of the criticisms, uh, like, taking them on board. And that is one, like, really admirable thing that comes through, admirable thing that comes through, is that while he's, you know, very passionately certain about things often, he's totally open to admitting he was wrong. Always. Always was. Um, um. There's there's a bit yeah. that has nothing to do with TV. It's about uh, this like gasoline additive that uh, Mobile or one of the companies had introduced, and he's like, I mean, I know just I hate the oil companies, but if this one little thing hurt, uh, fights pollution, then we should all be paying the extra for it, right? Uh, so do it, and then and then the next week it's like, oh my god, everyone's sending me these letters telling me I'm wrong. <laughs> it's a shock. Uh, the, it's the, a shock, the, as you the said. Chevron it's is clearly lying, and that their additive actually does yeah. nothing. And then yeah, he follows yeah. it up weeks later with, well, more research like, has shown it really was a lie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's yeah, totally yeah. wrong. I was suckered. I, I want. I mean, if I can, he got invited to, and I I don't remember the group, but it was some big group of organized atheists invited him to come speak. A convention, and you know, one of the things we share is you know, us were we're not religious. I don't believe. I, mean, I, I have to say, over time, I'm like, okay, I guess I'm agnostic because if I died and found myself at the pearly gates, I would not go. You're not real. I go. <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> but uh, you know, we're both atheists, and he was going to, have to speak at this thing. And I, I sat down, and we had a great relationship because we, we, when we were writing together, as uh, Susan said, it was like. It was like walking out of the set of Deadwood. It was just two idiots just <laughs> screaming profanity at each other. <laughs> and 
I was like, why are you going to that? And he's like, what do you mean? We're almost I was like, we're not on the same page. I go, Harlan, I don't believe in God in the same way. Like, I don't give a shit about football. What I don't do is get together with a bunch of other people who don't like football yeah. and have meetings about how we don't like football every Monday night. It's yeah. like organized atheism to me. And Proselytizing all, no religion. Yeah, yeah, it's like, you know, when, when, when religious activists start messing with your civil rights, yes, we all band together and we fight them. But, you know, we, we believe it or not, there are plenty of people who believe in God who think that's horrible, too. Why are you like organizing around a principle of not belief is a form of belief? And he looked at me and sometimes we would argue for nine and a half hours and nothing would change. And this was like a minute and a half. And he looked at me and he went, huh? And he picked up the phone and he canceled. (laughs) 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 And and that was him. Yeah. It was like he had no, uh, he had a huge ego, but he had no, he had no adherence to anything but what he believed to be the truth. And if you put a crack in that, he was, he would, he would, he loved that, I think, more than he did having somebody just go oh, you're great he's almost a little reminiscent of um the uh, sentient octopuses in a book we read <laughs> a couple weeks ago called <laughs> children, children of ruin. ruin yeah um in that he displays all of his emotions are right on the surface yes. um yeah. but if he wrestles with you logically yeah. he'll just change his mind like yep yeah, that's fine yeah. I just realized that I grew, I was raised by uh, sentient Jewish octopuses, I think. <laughs> well, not, well, not sentient. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Speaking of football, one little <laughs> historical detail in here. <laughs> How dare you speak to football to me? I just told you I don't believe in it. <laughs> uh, this isn't even like him particularly going on a, like a, this isn't a, an Ellison writing detail. It's just a historical thing that he mentions. Uh, he's talking about sort of the bi- the clear bias in like what state news will or won't show. Like how there was a college football game where the band made a peace sign and they just cut away for nine minutes. Right. And he compares it to the NBC broadcast of the Super Bowl. And he says the halftime ceremonies were a reenactment of the War of 1812. (laughs) 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 Like, you know, after like Arcade Fire or the weekend being like, (laughs) that's what NFL (laughs) halftime shows were like at the Super Bowl in the 60s. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, And it it feels it's. One of those things that makes the difference between speculative fiction and TV criticism feel thinner because that seems like someone that that seems like something that Harlan Ellison would write in like a boy and his dog. Right. um, Right. What the underground, like weird suburban society in the post-apocalyptic future would do. Apparently we did it. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. Uh, one of the most confusing, other confusing asides is he at one point refers to Sherry Lewis and her sex-crazed hand puppet, Lamb <laughs> oh, <yeah>. And <laughs> I, I had known that, like, I grew up on yeah. Lamb Chop, and I mm-hmm. I was aware that uh, she had developed that character earlier. I did not know that the character was ever sex-crazed. <laughs> I, I, I think Harlan's just having some fun with yeah. it. <laughs> That's maybe more Harlan Ellis. <laughs> oh yeah god are you kidding me so there's a great uh, here's a great god this is the thing you, you you can't tell these stories anymore without this <laughs> so do you guys even know there was a tv show called the flying nun yeah, yeah. yes yeah. i never saw it sally, sally field starred as a nun get this here's the premise she can fly it's yeah. a sitcom and Every now and then, if you're one of those people who sort of like sits glassy-eyed in front of, I don't know, is Nick at Night still on or TV Land or anything, like they'll run episodes of The Flying Nun. And there's nothing more jarring than than seeing uh, Harlan's credit. Uh, He wrote an episode of The Flying Nun. Uh Actually, he may have taken, he had a famous um, TV credit as well, Cordwainer Bird. Which yeah. he would use if they had screwed up his, his script. I can't remember if he took one of those or not. Starlust was Cordwainer Bird, yeah. Starlust was dead, yeah. Yeah. And um, The Flying Nun is it just, you can't, you know, I was a child when that show was on. And you just were like, oh, okay, this is a TV show. And then you grow up and you're like, there was a sitcom about a nun who flies. I don't <laughs> understand. And why did, like, my favorite, the writer who had more impact on my life, why the hell did he write an episode of Flying Nun? Forgive me, some of your more sensitive listeners, and please don't bleep this because the word is the word's okay. It's just 
Um, Harlan wrote an episode of The Flying Nun because he wanted to bang Sally Field. That was it. That was an honorable reason. That was like, (laughs) if I write this, I'll get. And the tragedy is the night before he was supposed to meet her, he got into a fight with three guys outside some some bar who were, of course, three times his size. Here's the trick. Harlan had no pain receptors. He didn't feel physical pain. And and, uh, he got into a fight with him and he ended up in a hospital. And so he didn't get to meet Sally Field. And I will I will tell you, it, it, he was a charming bastard in that era. If he had met her, there was at least a fifty percent chance he would have killed her. <laughs> and and that that was him. It was like he would do something. You know, he would rail against TV and all of its evils. But at at the drop of a hat, if um, you know, well, yeah, bang Sally Field, I'll, I'll write that garbage. <laughs> and, and I there's something noble in that. And weirdly, and this is probably an overshare that that became a sort of touchstone for for during the course of our relationship because i at one point i i had this sort of brief fling with with super hotness i got nominated for an oscar and i got offered this giant franchise movie like offered i didn't have to come in and pitch it was like do you want to write this and i had no feel for it i had no interest in it and i passed on it and you know i'd be worth a billion dollars today if i'd written it and the same week that i didn't do that uh, i took a job writing a batman cartoon for i believe five thousand dollars and and uh, uh, Harlan said, "Why'd you do that?" I said, "Because I wanted to bang Sally Field." <laughs> so it became like banging Sally Field became like when you're doing a job for reasons other than money. So I just wanted to bang the animated Batman. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. Was it was it Batman the animated series? <laughs> uh, no, it was, it was, no, no, it was a, it was a Blu-ray, um, one of those DC direct things called Batman Gotham Knights, ah, and it was a series of shorts, and I, I, I wrote the first one in, this, in the thing, and it was so much fun, and I got to it as a, a long-time old-school Batman fan, uh, I got to write a scene where Batman cuts off a guy's head. <laughs> awesome. And, and by the way, and I also completely firmly believe that Batman does not kill, and I managed to square that circle, so you'll have to watch it and uh, <laughs> Find out how. Oh my God, that, now that is a pitch. If you want to listen to the show live, just log on to kcsb.org on Saturdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Or if you happen to be in the Santa Barbara area, tune your dials to 91.9 FM. But yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, it was fun going back and kind of flipping because I haven't looked at these in a long, long time. And, and I haven't spent, you know, when, when Harlan died, um, I had a conversation with a mutual friend and, and, um, he talked about how a few years back, another friend of his had died who was very famous and he was like, you don't want to get caught in the like professional mourner business. Mm-hmm. And, and that, I clicked with that. And I, um, I wrote one piece for, uh, a new edition of Alice in Wonderland, which is the book that made me want to be a writer. And that that has been it, except for this, in terms of stuff that I have done kind of publicly about Harlan. But um, this was such an interest. You know, when you approached me, I was like, yeah, I, I, you know, if you're going to talk about his writing, there's a million people who can do that, and they should. His his mm-hmm. fiction, but it was an opportunity um, to talk about this this great book, which is not talked about as much. And I think I think it's. Um, I don't know, man. I I really I go back and forth, and I think some of it there's a, there's an age thing. I think. That, you know, is it 40? I don't know. But there seems to be a thing under like people under 40 seem to grasp how 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 bad things are and how mm-hmm. um, the media and the establishment have brought us here. And so much of, uh, in fact, I do a podcast called The West Wing Thing where we dissect the West Wing every week because uh, it's a TV show that I think is not only an amazing uh, magnifying glass into the liberal brain microscope it also had a huge and enormously bad impact and i think brought us to where we are today it gave us trump and and i remember early on kind of realizing that like oh yeah this is i'm just i'm doing what harlan was doing to some extent i think uh more people ought to know about this this aspect of him of this work that he did as much as it is couched in terminology and attitudes of the time he was so far ahead of the time in his understanding of the dangers of media and in the dangers of kind of a sort of comfy, dopey liberalism that, you know, anything I can do to help keep that, you know, aspect of his work alive as well, uh, I think is important to do. So, and, I, and I appreciate you guys letting letting me do that and talking about this today. Yeah, we're psyched to have had it here. Yeah, I hope, it, I hope we didn't make it as if you were, you know, here to eulogize him. So. <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. Yeah. But, but if you want a great story, do you want a great story about that to go out on? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, it's frustrating. At one point, I was going to. So, uh, unfortunately, this project never happened. It may still, but toward, towards the end of his life, 
there was talk of resurrecting. There was a comic book uh, called Alice in Wonderland where a bunch of uh, different artists and writers adapted Harlan short stories. And it was very successful. And then, you know, then it, it stopped. And there was, uh, I think it was IDW was talking about bringing it back. And uh, the editor there approached me about doing the story. And I thought, I don't know what I could possibly, like what's one story I could adapt that would that would sort of, you know, be my love letter to my friend. And I couldn't come up with one. And I thought, oh, you know what I'll do? No one's ever adapted one of his essays. Uh-huh. And I called the editor and I said, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna reread all of his essays. I'm going to find one that I can turn into a comic book and I'll do that. He's like, ooh, that's great. And I remember going to Harlan's house. I think it was the last time I was at his house. And he said, what? Did I just talked to Chris Wilde. He said, you're going to adapt one of my essays. What a stupid freaking idea. What the hell's the matter with you? <laughs> and the hilarious thing is I just read a ton of them and realized I didn't know how to, and I was about to give up. And if you want... This is our relationship. I really was. I was about to give up and just adapt one of his stories. And then Harlan telling me it's the dumbest idea he'd ever heard. I was like, all right, now I'm doing it. And I went back and I kept reading. And then I found one. And literally the last conversation I had with Harlan, he, he called me up. We were talking. I was sitting on my porch. And I said, I, I found, I found, by the way, uh, I found the essay that I'm going to adapt. He's like, ah, there's a, you're an idiot. You're going to be. I said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it. And I said, and everybody in the world is going to hate me for doing it, but you're going to love it. He's like, ah, blah, 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 blah. what is it? He wrote an essay in, I think, the early 70s. It's based on him, his ruminations driving home from a party. Uh, I, I love these references. He was at a party at Mama Cass's house. <laughs> and he almost died in a car wreck. And he started thinking about his own mortality. And it's called The Day I Died. And it's just a series. He keeps leaping for it every few years into various and sundry ways he might die in the future. And he lays them all out. And I was like, what I'm going to do is I'm going to write a page for each of these. We're going to get an amazing comic book artist. Each one is going to adapt a death of Harlan Ellison. And I said, I'm only going to add one because this was before Star Trek had come back and become the full-fledged mania that it is. And if it had been, you would have had a segment in there where Star Trek fans stoned you to death for Bad Math and Gene Roddenberry. So I'm adding that, but the rest I'm adapting. And it's going to be called The, way, the Day I Died, and it's going to be 10 pages of just great comic artists drawing, drawing you dying. And I'm not joking. This is our last conversation, and it was just the two of us laughing so hard we were crying. He thought that was the greatest thing he'd ever heard. So that that is Harlan Ellison. That is a guy who, a week before he died, and it was not a surprise, and uh, was laughing hilariously at the prospect of his own death. So That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for coming on our show. Um, everyone should check out the West Wing thing. I can vouch for the West Wing thing for sure. It's Thank you. It's a great, a great podcast and the movies that made you. Um, you're at, uh, at Joshua R. Olson on Twitter, right? Josh? Something like that. If you say so, yes. <laughs> so if people... <laughs> to my great... Sh- I, I'm the only Josh also with a blue check, which I'm told is a sign that I'm some sort of fascist, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Out of it, whatever. Out of touch of weed. Uh, yeah, exactly. That is me. Josh, I've been... We've been... I, I'm floating around the idea of watching Infested. Ah. Um, which might be cool. <laughs> We might get to that uh, I stand by it. It's an acquired taste. Um, I I wrote and directed a movie uh, in 2000, and it's a very low-budget film, and it is a... um, A lot of people complain about stuff. Harlan Ellison complained about TV. I I did not like The Big Chill. (laughs) So I I wrote a version of The Big Chill. I updated it to the 80s, and then I killed them all with fly-infested zombies. (laughs) It sounds great. Next week, we'll probably do another short story, and and then who knows, listener, what's after that. Check out our website for links and playlists, lastrefugepod.com. Send us an email at the last refuge of the incompetence at gmail.com. Leave us a voicemail, jerks, at uh, <laughs> 805-253-3091. 805-253-3091. A college you- sophomore will listen to your voicemail. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Radio, and, really? This is going on on radio. Yeah. Terrestrial yeah. radio. Yeah. Wow. Incredible. Call my, call my mom. <laughs> <laughs> sweet dreams. What, what's a good sweet dream sign up, Moses? Uh, I have no mouth and I must dream. <laughs> <laughs> that's the one. Oh, and dreams with sharp teeth. Uh, streaming oh, that's on, on them internets. If, you, if, you, if you're intrigued by Harlan Ellison and want to spend some time just hanging out with him, it's an incredible film. Great. Perfect. Thanks, Josh. Thanks,